What's going on, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of the Primetime Sports Podcast, hosted by Joey Mayalari. I hope all is well with each of you, and hope you guys have had a wonderful week. Hope you guys have been able to enjoy the beautiful weather over the last few days. Uh, I know July 4th is coming, July 4th weekend, so hopefully you guys have a great weekend as well, uh, bracing and uh, hoping for beautiful weather, um, hopefully sunny days, uh, and so everyone can get out there and enjoy it. Um, anyways, in today's episode, I'm going to break down what happened in Game 6 of the Stanley Cup Finals, um, and then I'll also talk about what happened in the NBA Draft. I'll recap the draft and the first 14 picks in the lottery, um, which was a week ago now. Um, I'll talk about my winners and losers uh, of draft night, what teams I thought did really well, what teams I thought could have done better. Um, after that, I would discuss news and rumors within the NBA with free agency beginning today uh, at 6 p.m. Eastern time. Um, then I would talk about news within the NFL, uh, which includes some players retiring uh, over the last week or two, uh, including Rob Gronkowski, former Patriot legend. Um, at the end, I would discuss... Some headlines within the game of baseball, including Freddie Freeman's emotional return to the Atlanta Braves this past weekend. Um, I'll talk about the whole situation with him firing his agent over his agent, Casey Close, uh, not telling him about the final offer that the Braves um, gave him before he accepted his deal with the L.A. Dodgers. So to start things off, the Colorado Avalanche. Uh, won the series against the Tampa Bay Lightning 4-2, to four games to two. Uh, they defeated Tampa Bay 2-1 to one in game six. Uh, it was quite a game and quite a finish uh, to the NHL season. Um, congratulations to the Colorado Avalanche on an unreal year. Um, and then also congratulations to former UMass uh, Minutemen defenseman uh, Def- Kale McCarr. He had a spectacular run this playoffs. Um, and honestly, I was always a little skeptical about his game, but... He proved me wrong um, in this run he just had at the Avalanche. Um, and what I said um, in my last episode uh, was that if Tampa Bay wanted to win, Steven Stimkos had to have a good game. Uh, and he scored in the first period to get things going. So right away, you know, the Lightning had at least a, had at least an edge. Um, and I said if Colorado wanted to win, Nathan McKinnon had to have a good game and make good plays as well. Um, and look at that. He scored in the second period, and also assisted on the other goal uh, that Colorado had in the second. So he finished with two points, um, had a point in each of uh, Colorado's two goals. I mean, he was a crucial part of uh, the Avalanche winning game six. So both guys I said that need to needed to step up for their respective teams, Steven Stamkos on the Lightning, and then you look at Nathan McKinnon on the Avalanche, both guys had good games. Um, and then Arturi uh, Lekkinen uh, scored the game-winning goal uh, for Colorado, uh, he was also assisted by former Northeastern University defenseman Josh Manson. Uh, Manson was actually traded uh, to Colorado this year in a deal with the Anaheim Ducks for a second-round pick in the 2023 NHL Draft. And then also former BC Eagles young defenseman uh, Drew Hellison was also included in that deal. So Anaheim got Drew Hellison in a second-round pick in return for Josh Manson. Josh Manson obviously goes to Colorado and then ends up helping them win a Stanley Cup final. So uh, at the end of the day, obviously, the cost was a young defensive roster, young defenseman prospect who's going to be uh, a good NHL one day, I believe. Um, and then also you look at a second round pick, but at the end of the day, anything's worth the cost of winning a championship. Um, and it worked off of Colorado. It also worked off of Anaheim. I mean, they were, you know, not going to make a, a, a run at it. So them making a trade, you know, to grab a young defenseman like Hellison and also grab a draft pick, you know, it worked off of both sides, obviously. Um, anyways, uh, both goalies played well. Um, in game six, uh, which I said whichever goalie had the harder game, started harder, that is, would end up leading their team 
uh, to a Game 6 run and potential force in Game 7 if it was Vasilevsky or if it was Kemper, obviously, clinching the Stanley Cup uh, final win and, and winning uh, the Stanley Cup. But uh, I think if you look at it, both goalies played very well. I wouldn't say either one uh, had a bad game. They both played very well. Dawson Kemper saved 95.7% of the shots he faced. Um, so 22 of 23 shots faced, he saved. Um, they got Andre Vasilevsky on the other side, stopped 28 of 30 shots faced for a 93.3% save percentage. Um, and as I said, whichever goalie started harder, I thought would have a better game. Um, and what I meant by that was I thought it would be a 4-3 game. I had the Lightning winning 4-3 was my prediction. So I thought they'd be, you know, three or four goals in the first period. And whichever goalie gave up the least amount, I thought, you know, it ended up winning the game. But obviously it ended up being a very low-scoring game, you know, 2-1. to one. Uh, so my prediction of whatever goalie starting harder, you know, wasn't really relevant uh, since, you know, neither team really scored a ton. So I thought, you know, if the Lightning scored three goals in the first, or, you know, two goals in the first period, I thought, okay, that means, you know, it's not Kemper's day and, and the Lightning are going to win. And then on the same thing on the other side, I thought, you know, maybe if Vasilevsky allows a couple goals in the first period, I thought that may be it uh, and, and, and they'd end up losing. But if you think if you look at it, though, both goalies played very well, as I said, 95% save percentage versus 93% save percentage. Um, it really just came down to situational goals, and obviously uh, Colorado grabbing two in the second period uh, kind of put a dent in it uh, for Tampa Bay's chances of a comeback and trying to force a game seven. And then you look at you know Colorado, how great of a run they had, and Kale McCarr was a big reason they ended up winning the Stanley Cup Finals. And I was obviously critical of him when I was talking to Mike Curley about him. Even in my last episode, I was a little critical of him, but... I think if you look at it all in all, uh, I was critical of it just because of the way he plays the game, the way he's in offensive defense, and I didn't know uh, if his play style would exactly work with this Avalanche team, and I obviously ended up being wrong. I didn't know if he had what it took to be such a good player in the playoffs. I mean, he was unreal, um, and, and the clutch factor was there um, heavily. He had a great run, so uh, everything I said about him, uh, I obviously was wrong about credit to him. Uh, he had a great run. He ended up winning the Consumite Trophy. Uh, which is given to the MVP of the Stanley Cup playoffs. Um, that's also to go along with him winning the James Norris Trophy this year, which is given to the uh, best defenseman. Um, and then you look at his, you know, how great of a run he had in the playoffs, 21 uh, assists to go along with eight goals and 29 points. Um, he also averaged, which I looked at this, I was doing research uh, for this episode, looking up stats and stuff, and I saw uh, on the Hockey Reference website, I was looking at average ice time in the Stanley Cup uh, playoffs, since I noticed, though, McCarver, you know, is playing 25, 30 minutes a night on the ice. Um, I looked at it, and he averaged the most ice time of any player in the Stanley Cup playoffs uh, at 27 minutes and 4 seconds per game. Uh, and that includes, you know, everyone who played except players. You had to play more than one game. Uh, so he averaged the most ice time of any player in the playoffs this year uh, for anyone who played more than one game. And as I said, 27 minutes and 4 seconds. So even with playing all those minutes, his production was still up. I mean, he didn't he didn't falter at all, really. I mean, his statistics uh, stayed high. Eight goals, as I said, 21 assists, 29 points. I mean, that's a great run. So credit to him. Uh, full due respect uh, how great of a run he had. Um, and then you look at the Avalanche as a whole. They were uh, a plus 625 odds to win the Stanley Cup Finals before the season. They ended up doing it, obviously. Um, they ended up winning the third Stanley Cup uh, trophy uh, in the franchise's history and their first since 2001. Um, and then another interesting thing which I found, and this is on the other side for the Lightning, Corey Perry became the first player in NHL history to lose three consecutive Stanley Cup finals with three different teams, which that's really hard to do. Lost twice against the Lightning and then just lost with the Lightning. So uh, tough run for him, obviously, in the last three years. Making it three times is very impressive, but losing three straight uh, is obviously heartbreaking. Um, and then you look at the injuries, too. 
these hockey players were tough as any uh, in this Stanley Cup run. Uh, for the Avalanche, Nazem Kadri was supposed to miss six weeks well, with fractured parts of his thumb. He ended up fighting through it, playing through it. Um, obviously, uh, ended up winning the Stanley Cup final, so it's worth it. Um, then you look at Eric Johnson. He nearly retired last year and ended up winning uh, with the Avs this year. So that's a really nice story there. Um, Andrzej Borowkowski, uh has a broken foot um, and ended up still playing and persevering through that and also a broken thumb to go along with it, uh, which is absolutely nuts how much hockey players can fight through. And Burakovsky, even with those two injuries, the broken foot and the broken thumb, ended up being, being a big piece of that Avalanche team. I right, scored the game-winning goal in Game 1 um, to beat the Lightning 4-3 to in overtime, uh, which was a very nice, a nicely timed goal, especially considering his injuries. I mean, scoring any goals with, with those injuries is spectacular. So being able to fight through that and also score a game-winning goal in the Stanley Cup Finals Game 1 uh, is absolutely nuts. And then you also look at Bowen Byram, uh, another guy on the Avalanche with a nice story of, of returning. Uh, he nearly retired before this year with multiple concussions. Um, obviously, returned to playing and ended up winning with Colorado as well. So, uh, very nice stories on the Avalanche side. And then you look at the Lightning, it's a lot harder to play through injuries and end up losing because uh, it feels like, you know, to a certain degree it wasn't worth it. Although, obviously, it's it's worth it trying to fight for a Stanley Cup Finals win. Um, but Braden Point played through... Um, a couple games with the, with the torn quad. Um, and then you look at Nikita Kucherov. He played through an MCL sprain. Anthony Sorelli played through an AC joint sprain. He also needs surgery for it. And then lastly, Brandon Hagel uh, played through the whole Eastern Conference Finals and the Stanley Cup uh, with the foot fracture. So hockey players really do go through it all trying to fight uh, for a win. You know, the toughness factor is absolutely ridiculous. Um, anyways, one last formal congratulations uh, to former hockey star Kim McCann. Then you look at Alex Newhook. Former BC Eagle forward and Josh Manson as well, former Northeastern defenseman. So, uh, UMass, BC, and Northeastern were all very well represented um, on the biggest stage in the NHL uh, with all three of those guys bringing back a Stanley Cup uh, final uh, win back home. And then, obviously, uh, having three Hockey East alums on one team in the biggest stage in hockey um, is really special. So, congratulations to them three. I'm very happy to see the Hockey East be well represented, as I said, on the biggest stage in hockey, you know, bringing back a Stanley Cup final. Uh, to the Hockey East, you know, three guys on one team is very special. So congratulations to them. And I'm looking forward to see um, how the NHL develops and, and who uh, surprises people next year. I'm going to definitely cover more NHL hockey um, on my radio show next year at BC since I started really getting more into it. This Stanley Cup uh, playoff run, since I really liked Edmonton, I had Edmonton beating Calgary and ended up doing it. Um, I got a lot more into it. Uh, so I'm definitely looking forward to covering the NHL next year, and I hope you guys enjoyed following along uh, with my recaps of the Stanley Cup playoffs. So now I'm going to switch over to talking about the NBA draft. I'm going to recap what happened in that. Uh, to start off, it was the 13th consecutive year a college freshman was taken at number one overall. Uh, the Orlando Magic took uh, Duke power forward Paula Boncaro. And I said at the end of my NBA draft preview um, episode that I wouldn't be surprised if he ended up being the first pick. Uh, I actually think I had Jabari Smith end up being the first pick, but I was like 50-50 between them, if I remember right, at the end of my episode. Um, but as I said, I, I wasn't going to be surprised if Boncaro ended up being number one, since there was a lot of news and reports and rumors about him potentially being the first overall pick in, in a lot of people said the Magic could prefer him over Smith, which obviously ended up happening. Um, I think I had a day or two before I recorded that episode. I, you know, I made a couple mock drafts, you know, updated it uh, over that time frame, and I think I had Holmgren at two, 
And then I had Smith at three. So I think I had Bunkero at one, Holmgren at two, and Smith at three, which ended up being uh, the top three picks in a row. But I psyched myself out when I recorded this episode. Um, since everyone kind of expected Smith to still go number one, even though obviously there were rumors flying around about Bunkero potentially going number one. Um, and I know I said that Holmgren wouldn't go until three in my real mock draft that I recorded. Um, because I said if I was you know Sam Presti, I would have drafted – Jabari Smith there at two, since I felt like that would have been a steal, but Holmgren obviously ended up going number two to Oklahoma City, and then three was Jabari Smith to the Houston Rockets. Uh, but as I said, I had those top three picks actually in order a day or two before I recorded that episode, and I kind of just thought about it. I said, for a lot of this NBA draft coverage, you know, the month before, Jabari Smith was projected to be number one, uh, and then obviously Holmgren is supposed to be number two in, in, in most mock drafts. And I thought about it, you know, in mine, I would have had, if I was drafting number one, I would have been 50-50 between Smith and Boncaro. I would have taken Smith. And then realistically, I probably would have went, if it was me, Boncaro at two, if Smith was number one, uh, and then Holmgren at three. Uh, but obviously ended up being the reverse of that, the opposite. And if I was, as I said, if I was Sam Presti, I would have taken Jabari Smith at two. Um, but it was a surprise pick to some uh, with Boncaro going number one. Uh, because he didn't talk to the Orlando Magic until Monday before the draft. So three days before the draft was the first time he talked to them. And he never hosted, was never hosted for a workout in Orlando. So very big, you know, surprise pick to some. Uh, but a, quite a player, 17.2 points per game to go along with eight rebounds, three assists, a steal, a block, and shooting 33.8% from three uh, and 47.8% from the field. So quite a year for him at Duke. Very young player. I'm sure he's going to develop. Uh, into a great prospect for the Orlando team uh, to build around. Uh, then you look at number two, Chet Holmgren, center from Gonzaga, taking number two by the Oklahoma City Thunder. Uh, I think he'll definitely help the Oklahoma City Thunder with scoring. Scoring is a big need um, that that team needs. Um, it'll also help out a ton in transition um, and in the paint as well, which they need help with all three of those. Um, and he's going to a very young Oklahoma City team. Uh, they're very much well-built, well for the future. Um, and he's a great three-point shooter. If you look at it, he shot 39% from three last year, and Oklahoma City was last in three-point percentage in the NBA, shooting 32.3% from three. So his 39% shooting from three would definitely help that Oklahoma City team. And then also you look at Oklahoma City and field goal percentage. They were dead last in the NBA, shooting 43% from the field. Uh, he shot 60.7% from the field for Gonzaga in his freshman year campaign. Uh, and then they were also last in points per game at 103.7 points per game. Uh, and he averaged 14.1 at Gonzaga. So I think he's going to help out a ton. And then also you look at the offensive uh, rebounding end. He averaged 9.9 rebounds a game. Uh, so he's going to help you guys get boards. He's going to definitely put up uh, some putbacks. Uh, he averaged just about two assists per game and then also 3.7 blocks per game. So he's going to help a ton uh, on the defensive end too. So not a bad pick. I still would have went Smith at two. Um, but at the end of the day, it's up to – uh, the the GM and, and the GM's discretion and obviously Presley saw him uh, as more valuable at number two than Jabari Smith. So that takes me to number three. Jabari Smith went number three overall power forward from Auburn to the Houston Rockets, coming off a great freshman year, 16.9 points per game to go along with seven and a half rebounds, uh, two assists. She had 42% from three. He's a great shooter, 43% from the field, one steal per game and one block per game. Uh, he's a great two-way player, can do it all. I really like his game a lot. And I think Houston had quite the draft, obviously, uh, grabbing him as a great start. Um, and I think grabbing him at number three overall is an absolute steal. Um, and then you look at what they did with their other picks. They took Ty Ty Washington, 
from Kentucky. I'm a big fan of him, which I'm going to get into the winners of the draft. They were one of my winners, so I won't get into that uh, too much now. But they had a great draft, and I think he's built uh, very well for the future, that Houston Rockets team. I think he's built great drafting Jabari Smith at three, and then obviously Jalen Green last year. So I'm excited to see how Smith fits in on this team. I'm sure he's going to make a difference uh, right away for that Houston Rockets team who's been struggling heavily uh, over the last year or two. Uh, and then you look at number four. Uh, I actually had Keegan Murray from Iowa going uh, to the Sacramento Kings, uh, power forward from Iowa, and I absolutely drilled that. He ended up going number four. Um, Murray averaged 23.5 points per game this past year to go along with 8.7 rebounds, 1.5 assists, just about two blocks per game, just over a steal per game, 39.8% from three and 55.4% from the field. Uh, he had a great season at Iowa. I really felt like this Kings team could draft another guy. I wouldn't have been surprised if they went Jaden Ivey. Uh, but since Sacramento has De'Aaron Fox, I'm a big fan of, and then Davion Mitchell was their first-round pick last year, uh, I was happy they went with the big man. I felt like that fit their system um, a little more. And although I think Ivy is probably the better player, I think Ivy probably will be the better player, uh, I think Murray fits better in Sacramento since they need help on the boards, in the paint. They need a big man, um, and I think he'll play very well alongside uh, current Kings center Rashawn Holmes. So not a bad pick uh, for the Kings. I think a lot of people were going at them for not taking Ivy, but I think at the end of the day, you really need to look at your positional value, and I feel like them grabbing a big man there, Keegan Murray, um, was a good pick. Uh, so that takes me to number five, the Detroit Pistons. Took shooting guard Jaden Ivey from Purdue. Uh, Detroit was third worst in scoring per game last year in the NBA at 104.8 points per game. And they were second worst in three-point percentage at 32.6 points, uh, 32.6% uh, from three. So Ivy's going to help them a ton on both of those ends. He averaged 17.3 points per game this past year at Purdue to go along with five rebounds, three assists, and then also shot 35.8% from three. Um, very fluid shooter, and I'm excited to see uh, what play he grows to grows into in the NBA. He kind of reminds me of a little bit like Jay, uh, John Morant. I wouldn't say the same athleticism, but reminds me of a smaller John Morant. Um, definitely can make plays, um, and I'm excited to see how he develops into a big star in Detroit to go alongside Cade Cunningham um, and company, Isaiah Stewart as well. Um, they have a good young core over there um, in Detroit. I'm excited to see how they play um, together. Next, uh, the Internet Pacers uh, took Benedict Matherin, a shooting guard, um, at sixth overall from Arizona. Um, they were 25th last year, Indiana, um, in the NBA, shooting from three, 34.4% from three. Um, and Matherin's a great shooter, shot 36.9% uh, this past year at Arizona to go along with 45% from the field. Uh, he also scored 17.7 points per game to go along with five and a half rebounds and two and a half assists. Uh, so two and a half assists, six rebounds, just about 18 points. Great stat line there, and he's going to help out a ton uh, for that Indiana team. Uh, he also has a ton of confidence. He said uh, after the draft uh, that he doesn't see LeBron as the greatest player until LeBron proves that he's the best player on the earth, the best player ever, or, or whatever he said, uh, that LeBron has to prove to him how great he is since he sees himself as, you know, I guess the best already, Matherin, that is. So uh, a lot of confidence in this class. I know Chet Holmgren said before that he sees himself as the best player in the NBA in four months. So uh, this NBA draft class really does have quite the confidence. Um, anyways, uh, moving on out to number seven, the Portland Trailblazers. They took Shaden Shop from Kentucky. Um, a shooting guard. And as I said before, I think he's the biggest question mark and mystery of the entire draft um, since he never played a game at Kentucky and never suited up. But he could have, could end up being the steal of the draft too since he's such a question mark and no one knows much about him since they, nev they never saw him play in a college game. 
I think he could develop into a great player, and Portland's not a bad team to go to. Uh, go to. Since they already have Damian Lillard, um, they have a couple pieces there um, to help build around. They just traded with Jeremy Grant. Uh, I think he can definitely help out, um, and also being a big question mark, I mean, I don't know how high the expectations will be, so he could exceed people's expectations right away and become a star. I mean, who knows? I think he'll be a very good player, though, um, and not a bad pick, and not a bad toss-up for that Portland team. Now you look at number eight. The New Orleans Pelicans took Dyson Daniels, a shooting guard from the G League Ignite team. Uh, he averaged 11.3 points per game this past year to go along with six rebounds and four and a half assists. Uh, he's got great eyes on the court with, with very precise passing skills. Um, he'll contribute heavily to the defensive end, too. He's a great two-way player. Um, I think he'll develop well and play alongside Zion Williamson, Brandon Ingram, CJ McCollum, and company very well. Um, so I think it's a very good pick for them. Daniels ends up becoming the fifth Australian player to be drafted in the last 10 drafts, so uh, congratulations to him. Anyways, moving on now to the San Antonio Spurs. Uh, they took power forward Jeremy Sohan from Baylor. Um, he's coming off a 9.2 points per game season. Also grabbed just under 6.5 rebounds per game to go along with just under 2 assists per game, 1.3 steals per game, and just under a block per game at .7 blocks. Um, as I said before, uh, Sohan can play anywhere from the 1 through 5. Um, he's 6'9", is very good length. Um, he's a very polished player as well, who I think can help uh, San Antonio in their rebuild, which San Antonio's rebuild became a lot more evident yesterday when they traded DeJounte Murray, uh, their star guard, to the Atlanta Hawks, which I'm going to get into when I talk about uh, what's going on around the NBA and news around free agency and trades. So, uh, anyways, uh, for Johnny Davis, uh, he ended up being the 10th pick uh, from Wisconsin. He went to the Washington Wizards at number 10 overall. Um, he's coming off a great season at Wisconsin, averaged 19.7 points per game to go along with 8.2 rebounds, 1.2 steals, 2.1 assists per game. And he also shot 30.6% uh, from three this year, but was a 38.9% uh, shooter from three his freshman year. He shot 42.7% uh, from the field this year. So uh, coming off a re very good season, I think he's going to help this Wizards team out. Um, depending on what happens with uh, Bradley Bale, I think he could play very well alongside Bradley Bale. But it was reported by ESPN's Adrian Wojnarowski um, that Wizards star guard um, declined his $36.4 million option for this upcoming season. There was a report that uh, Bill would be expected to re-sign um, for a five-year $248 million deal um, at just under $50 million per year, at $49.6 million per year. But um, I haven't heard too much uh, buzz around that the last few days, so... Uh, potentially, who knows what's going to happen with Bale, but I think he'd play well alongside Johnny Davis, so I'm very interested to see what happens there uh, with Bradley Bale, and if he were to leave, where would he go? I know, obviously, him and Jason Tatum have had a great relationship, both being from, both being from St. Louis, so uh, I'm excited to see uh, where he ends up if he were to leave. But I know he's got more loyalty than any player in the NBA, so I wouldn't be surprised if he signs a five-year, $248 million deal to stay with the Wizards um, and help aid them uh, in their rebuild. Then you look at the Oklahoma City Thunder at number 11 overall. Uh, they took Uzman Jang. Uh, they traded with the New York Knicks for that number 11 overall pick. Uh, Jang, as I said, is a forward from France. Um, Oklahoma City sent three first-round picks, um, three protected first-round picks, that is, uh, for the number 11 overall selection. They didn't have to trade the number 12 overall, overall selection, so they had the number 11 and number 12 pick back-to-back. -back. Um, as I said, that's kind of the luxury of being Oklahoma City and having, you know, 19 first-round picks and 19 second-round picks in the next eight drafts, you know, going into this one. Having 38 picks, you can trade up and not even have to trade your 12th overall pick to get the 11th because you have so many draft picks uh, that you can just, 
they're just expendable. You can just trade them anywhere and you don't really have to care. You can take sh- swings and misses, take shots and, and, and not care. And that's a luxury of being Sam Presti. I think he's done so well in that rebuild in Oklahoma City. And I think three to five years from now, they're going to be a powerhouse in the NBA that is going to be tough for anyone to compete with, especially if they hit on their draft picks like they have in the past, you know, getting Russell Westbrook, Kevin Durant, uh, James Harden. They draft all three of those guys. Uh, and they also made moves, you know, trades for Shea uh, Gilgis-Alexander. Uh, he's a very good GM. Uh, he's had guys like Victor Oladipo, Paul George, uh, Carmelo Anthony, all with Oklahoma City Thunder uniforms. Uh, so I'm excited to see uh, how Jang pans out for this Oklahoma City team since he's been so great as a GM of getting talent and developing it. And who knows, Jang could just be another great draft pick, uh, you know, potential uh guy like a James Harden, Kevin Durant, or Russell Westbrook makes an impact right away. I mean, I'm not saying that's what he's going to be, but uh, with Sam Presti, how good of a GM he is, uh, you can never question any of his picks since uh, he's been a great GM uh, and has really rebuilt this team uh, to a level that no other GM could have. I mean, 38 draft picks over eight years is absolutely nuts. Uh, So I'm excited to see what happens there in Oklahoma City um, over the next few years. Um, Now, looking at Jang, He's coming off a pretty good season for the New Zealand Breakers, averaging just under 9 points per game at 8.9 points uh, to go along with 3.2 rebounds, 1.1 assists, shot 39.8% from the field, 27.1% from three, um, then averaged just under um, a steal per game, 0.6 steals per game. Uh, I think he's very much on the long-term plan um, in Oklahoma City. I do like the pick, and I like the way Jang plays. Um, he's only 19 years old, so uh, he has a ton of... Of, of room to develop and a ton of time to develop. I think he'd be a, a draft and stash maybe for this year. Who knows if he's going to uh, come over from New Zealand and play uh, for Oklahoma City this year. I wouldn't be surprised if he does or doesn't. Um, I feel like you know, it's going to be up to his uh, discretion and even Sam Presti's whether or not he wants him to come over. But um, the French wing is a ton of room to develop, a ton of potential um, to develop as well. So I'm excited to see uh, how he pans out in Oklahoma City. Um, so speaking of Oklahoma City, they had the 12th pick as well. Uh, they took small forward Jalen Williams from Santa Clara. Uh, he's coming off another great season as well. Another guy uh, with a very good season. Uh, obviously, with Jang only averaging nine points per game, it doesn't look like the greatest stat line. But if you watch Jang on film, uh, I think it shows how much potential he has. Then you look at Jalen Williams. Uh, he's coming off 18 points per game to go along with four and a half rebounds, four assists, 1.2 steals, shot 39.6% from three. 81% from the free throw line, then also 51% from the field. Um, he's been all West Coast selection uh, this year, so he was an All Conference player in, in the West Con- in the All West Coast Conference. Um, he's a 6'6 junior. Um, definitely will help this Oklahoma City team with their scoring and shooting issues. Then um, also brings a little bit more uh, leadership, being a three-year college player. He's a little bit more experience, um, and they have a very young, solid roster though in Oklahoma City. Uh, they're going to be building around, uh, obviously, Kentucky star forward, former Kentucky star forward, that is, uh, Shea Gilgis-Alexander. They have Josh Giddy as well. Um, they also added three picks um, in the top 12. They said Jalen Williams, Uzma Jang, um, and also Chet Holmgren. And they also have Lou Dort as well, who they just declined um, his player option for next year. Um, but he's a restricted free agent, so they can still bring him back. But I'm excited to see how this uh, Oklahoma City team pans out over the next two to three years. Um, now moving on to the 13th pick. Um, this was yet another New York Knicks trade, um, which was very confusing how the Knicks traded their draft picks on, on draft night since they weren't really reporting, you know, the full trade details of any of their trades. So it was really confusing for, you know, 25, 30 minutes. No one knew who was trading what and what the Knicks were getting. Uh, but anyways, they ended up trading that 13th pick that they got, uh, from Charlotte 
uh, to the Detroit Pistons. Uh, and the Pistons drafted Jalen uh, Duran, a, a center from Memphis. Uh, they get their center of the future, and they had themselves quite the draft, Charlotte. Um, adding a shot blocker and a versatile center like Duran um, is a great draft, and he'll protect the paint for them um, and crash the boards uh, for years to come. Uh, he's coming off a very good season for Memphis. Averaged 12 points per game to go along with eight rebounds. Uh, he shot 59% from the field, and then also averaged 2.1 blocks per game. So he can help you on the defensive end and offensive end. Um, and also shot just under 60%. Uh, so he's definitely going to help them uh, with some of their scoring woes at times. Uh, Detroit definitely had themselves quite the draft, drafting him and Jaden Ivey. Uh, Jaden Ivey was probably my favorite player in this draft. I think he's going to end up being the best player in this draft. He definitely has the highest ceiling, in my opinion, uh, and probably the, the, the highest floor as well. I mean, I think he can be the best player in this draft with how much he could take over games. And and then also you add a guy like Duran as well, a, a center that you've needed in Detroit for years now. So uh, Detroit had themselves a good draft. I'm excited to see how they play as well. Um, now moving on to the 14th pick, uh, the last lottery pick, the Cleveland Cavaliers, uh, took Ochai Abaji. I absolutely drilled that pick um, uh, forward from Kansas. Uh, I absolutely love this pick for Cleveland. Um, he was a consensus All-American this past year, Big 12 Player of the Year. Uh, was also the player of the NCAA tournament, uh, MVP of it, most outstanding player in 2022. Um, very good player. I think he helps out this Cleveland team a ton. Um, he had a 3-37-39 and games this year. Scored double digits in 37 of 39 games uh, as well. Averaged 18.8 points per game to go along with 5.1 rebounds. He shot 40.7% from three, so just out of 41%. Uh, 41%. And then you look at uh, he's going to a team that's already got a ton of depth and talent. Uh, they got Darius Garland, Colin Sexton, who's a restricted free agent. Um, they're a great young backcourt there. And then you got Kevin Love. So you got a good vet. Aziko Koro, another young, great. Uh, player with with a lot of potential. He's the fifth pick of the 2020 draft. You got Evan Mobley, another guy with a lot of great potential. He was the third pick in the 2021 NBA draft uh, to go along with Jared Allen and Laurie Markkinen. Uh They needed another wing, uh, especially a small forward to his caliber, and I think he fits in well uh, with this Cleveland team. Uh, they got a ton of depth and talent, as I said, and I'm excited to see uh, what Cleveland does. I mean, they've needed scoring help. They were 25th uh, last year in scoring the NBA at 107.8 points per game. Uh, so adding a guy like Ochai Abaji uh, is a great draft pick. And as I said, 18.8 points per game uh, to, go, to go along with 41% shooting from three. Uh, I absolutely love this pick. I think Cleveland's going to be a surprise team in the East. I think they could definitely be a five seed, uh, which I'm going to get into uh, in a few minutes. I'll talk more about them. Now moving on to the Charlotte Hornets at 15. So I was only going to do the lottery picks, but I actually drafted you know, in my mock draft. I had Mark Williams going number 13 to the Hornets. And then I said, oh, you know, in my episode, I said, oh, they have the 13th and the 15th pick for Charlotte, so they could draft him at 15 if they wanted as well. And lo and behold, uh, Mark Williams is the 15th pick uh, to the Charlotte Hornets, a center from Duke uh, at number 15 overall. Uh, I drilled them taking him, so I was happy with that, so I want to talk about him. Um, uh, Charlotte had the 13th and 15th pick, so as I said, they had the chances, you know, they could take him either way, and the chances of him being there at 15 still were pretty high, I and mean, it ended up working out for them. Uh, he averaged 11.2 points per game uh, this past year for Duke to go along with 7.4 rebounds, 2.5 blocks, and also shot 72% from the field. He's a 7-foot center with seven with a 7-7 seven, seven wingspan. Um, it'll definitely help protect the paint, help them on the offensive end, um, and help them block shots as well. So a uh, great draft pick for the Hornets. Um, definitely helps them space the floor a little more now too. So now I'm going to talk about the L.A. Clippers and the Boston Celtics and who they drafted uh, with their second-round selections. 
the LA Clippers took Moussa Diabete, uh, who was born in Paris. Um, he's a 6'11 power forward slash center. Um, he attended the University of Michigan for one year, just came out of college as a freshman. Um, the Clippers took him at 43 overall. Uh, Diabete had a good season for Michigan, uh, averaged nine points per game to go along with six rebounds, um, just under a block per game at .9 blocks, um, and also shot 54.2% from the field. Um, he's only 20 years old, so uh, the French big has a ton of uh, space and room to develop and a ton of time to develop as well. He's only 20. Um, he's not polished enough in the offensive end, um, so I don't think he'll get too many minutes on the Clippers. Um, but I think he can definitely help out uh, since you know they only have Zubats as the only center uh, now in the Clippers roster. If they were to lose Isaiah Hottenstein, which we'll see over the next day, um, what happens with him in free agency. So I think Diabate will get... A few minutes a night, maybe five to ten minutes a night would be my guess now. Um, if he's maybe starts in the G League, I wouldn't be surprised they were either as well, uh, since they could uh, let him develop. But a very good pick by the Clippers, just to take a drafted stash type of guy like Diabate, um, let him maybe develop in the G League for a year, or even develop on the Clippers bench, and who knows, maybe a year or two from now, uh, he could be a great uh, rotation player for them. Maybe as you know, the second center off the bench. Um, anyways, uh, now that takes me to the Celtics. Uh, they took D.J. Davidson with a 53rd overall pick, a 6'3 point guard from the University of Alabama. Um, I actually mentioned him um, at the end of my NBA draft preview um, as a player to keep your eye on since I thought he could be available for the Celtics at 53. And then look at it, lo and behold, the Celtics take him at 53 overall. He's coming off a good season for Alabama, um, averaging 8.5 points per game to go along with 4.8 rebounds, 4.3 assists, and then also a steal per game. Um, he did average nine assists per 100 possessions um, this past year, which is good. Um, but one thing with him, his main issue is his turnover issues, and uh, that's something the Celtics would definitely have to work on. Uh, so definitely a project. Um, I don't think he's going to step in right away and get quality minutes. Um, he won't play more than a handful of minutes off the bench per night if he were to play. I see him being like kind of like you know the French uh, big man on the Clippers now, Diabate. I think they could play you know five to ten minutes per night, uh, maybe just be the back end of the rotation. Um, but uh, with Davidson, uh, one thing with him, he does have great athleticism, so uh, he does have a great highlight reel of his dunks. He could jump out the gym uh, with some of those electric dunks and drives. But I think one thing with him is his turnover issues will take time to develop, and I don't think he's going to get uh, too many minutes off the bench uh, since that's going to take uh, some progress. And, and, and obviously being a project, being the 53rd overall pick, not many guys are 53 overall and step in right away and have a role. Um, a lot of them are two-way players between the G League and the NBA, and I'd imagine Davidson uh, will be something like that. Um, and Musa Diabate, I think he has more of a chance to be on the Clippers roster um, than Davidson. I think Davidson probably starts out in the G League. Uh, but with Diabate, I think he's going to be on the Clippers roster since they really only have one center, and that's Zubats. And I obviously liked Diabate as well, him being a French uh, big man, as I said before in my last episode, um, I was like, you know, following the French international players. Um, so I like him being on the Clips. I think he fits in well with that system uh, more than Davidson, I guess, does with the Celtics as of now. Um, I think Davidson starts out in the G League, and I think Diabate uh, starts out in the back end of that Clippers bench, uh, probably be the 14th guy on that bench, maybe get, you know, five to 10 minutes a night, uh, maybe if there's a blowout or something, um, just to get some run in. So, last uh, part of my NBA draft. Uh, talk. We'll be talking about um, some of my favorite draft prospects uh, that I talked about in my last episode. I'm just going to highlight two of the guys I mentioned, and then also talk about who I had as winners of the draft and losers of the draft. Um, so to start off, uh, Ishmael Kamagati. Um, I was a big fan of him. He's probably my favorite player in this draft besides Jaden Ivey. Um, he's a 6'11 center from Paris, uh, played for Paris this past year. He's 21 years old. Um, I would have loved to see him I would have loved to have seen him be drafted by the Clippers at 43, the Celtics at 53. 
Um, I knew he would have been gone by 53 for the Celtics, so I figured the only hope for him to be on one of those two teams were to be the Clippers um, at 43. Um, he ended up going 46 overall uh, to the Denver Nuggets. Um, Denver actually traded back in uh, to the second round to draft him. They, they traded back in uh, the Portland Trailblazers um, and then selected him at 46. Um, Kamagati would probably be the Nuggets' backup center, I, I would believe, right away behind uh, Nikola Jokic. Um, I think he'll contribute, uh, maybe get 10 to 15 minutes per night um, off the bench. He's coming off a really good season for Paris basketball, um, 11.3 points per game to go along with 6.3 rebounds, just under an assist per game, 64.3% shooting from the field. Um, he doesn't shoot threes uh, at all, really. So uh, he's going to be probably locked down in the paint, maybe a pick and roll guy, which he's very good at. Um, and then also 1.6 blocks per game, too. So he's a great shot blocker. He's a great rim protector. Um, he's a great anchor in the paint. I think that's what he's going to be. He's probably not going to develop an outside shot. Um, but he's got great athleticism, uh, too, for a 6'11", uh, big. And he also has solid footwork as well in the pick and roll, uh, which I talked about uh, before with him and Juwan Begaron, um, who was the Celtics' 2021 second-round pick. Um, I really like his game. Uh, and I'm excited to see Kamagati play uh, for the Nuggets this season. And now that takes me to the last draft prospect I want to talk about, um, and that's Hugo Besson, um, a 6'5 point guard, uh, 21 years old. So he's a 7th ranked point guard by ESPN. Uh, he played this last season with the New Zealand Breakers. Um, he is a born and raised French basketball player. Um, so as I said, I really like the international players a lot since I, I think there's a lot of hidden gems um, overseas um, since they don't get as many eyes on them as college players do for the most part. Um, anyways, he's coming off a good season with New Zealand. Average just out of 14 points per game. 13.9 points per game to go along with 3.9 rebounds per game. Two and a half assists per game. 38.5% shooting from the floor and 30.6% shooting from three. Um, as I said, born and raised basketball player from France. Um, Milwaukee Bucks uh, drafted him with the last pick of the NBA draft, number 58 overall. Um, I, think he's, I think he's a good shooter. He's not too athletic, uh, but he's got a good mind for the games. I think he could, as I said, be another draft and stash guy for the Bucks. He'll probably stay uh, playing overseas for another few years, but uh, the Bucks will own the rights to him. So um, excited to see uh, what he does in the future as well. Um, anyways, now for the last segment of the NBA draft talk, my winners of the draft and my losers of the draft. So for my winners of the draft to start off, I got the Detroit Pistons and Jaden Ivey as my first winner of the draft. Uh, my first winners, I should say. I think they both win. Um, Ivey wanted to be a Piston more than anything. Um, you could just see it with how emotional he was on stage and in his interview after getting drafted. Um, and also the Detroit Pistons got a ton of offers from the New York Knicks, um, amongst other teams trying to draft uh, Ivey at number five overall and move up. They declined every single uh, trade offer since they said, Ivy's our pick. That's who we want. And uh, I think he's a great draft pick, especially number five overall. I think he'd be the still of the draft. I think he will be the still of the draft. I mean, I think he could be the best player of the draft. I think he could be uh, the potential rookie of the year with how electric um, he is as a player and as a shooter. And Ivy's connection to Detroit uh, goes back a long way. His mom uh, actually played uh, 12 games for the Detroit Shock um, in her final uh, WNBA season. Um, this is coming from a Sports Illustrated uh article. Um, and then you look at Ivy's father as well. Um, he grew up in Michigan, uh, played high school football um, at Detroit Country Day School. Um, and then also Jaden Ivy's grandfather, um, James Hunter, spent the majority of his NFL career uh, playing for the Detroit Lions in the 70s and 80s. Um, so he has a great connection uh, to Detroit and I'm happy for him. Now he goes to 
uh, just continue the legacy of, you know, his family playing uh, sports, professional sports and also high school sports for Detroit. So I'm excited for him. Uh, and I think obviously he was excited uh, to be a Piston. I think he wanted that more than anything um, as well. My second winner of the draft, the Houston Rockets. Grabbing Jabari Smith at three, I think, was um, tremendous. I don't think anyone really saw him going uh, to number three and falling there. Um, then also grabbing Ty Ty Washington, a point guard from Kentucky at 29. Um, Smith and Washington, I think, were both great draft picks. I think um, both are kind of steals relatively where they were drafted. Smith being at number three was a surprise to many. I think Washington being at 29 was a surprise to many as well. Um, Ty Ty Washington's coming off a good year for Kentucky. He averaged 12.5 points per game uh, to go to go along with 3.5 rebounds, 3.9 assists, uh, 1.3 steals. He shot 35% from three and then 45% from the floor. Um, he also became the 15th University of Kentucky guard to go in the first round since 1988. Um, and no other college program has had more than five uh, over that span. So it just shows Kentucky uh, really does uh, develop point guards and guards in general, shooting guards and point guards, and put them in the NBA better than, better than anyone. And that includes, uh, you know, guys like Shea Gilgis Alexander, Devin Booker, Jamal Murray, De'Aaron Fox, Malik Monk, just to name a few. Uh, Kentucky loves putting guards in the NBA, and that's just what Calipari's great at. And that's why I'm a fan of Kentucky. I became a fan of them because of De'Aaron Fox, and ever since then, um, I've been I've been a big fan. I like Washington's game, uh, so I'm excited to see him play for the Rockets. I think he can play a good role for them this season. And then you look at what they did with their other pick. The Houston Rockets had the 17th pick. It took Tyree Eason, a power forward from LSU, uh, who can play too. So they have three very good first-round picks at number three, number 17, and number 29 overall. So I'm excited to see how they play. Uh, then you look at uh, my last winner of the draft, the Cleveland Cavaliers, uh, taking Ochai Abaji uh, at number 14 overall. As I said, I'm truly excited to see uh, this Cavs team play. Uh, they were the eighth seed last year, um, but I see them potentially being a top-five seed in the NBA. Um, the sky's the limit for this team with, with how much young talent they have. And then also you look at, I mean, they have a lot of vets too on the team. They're very good. Kevin Love, uh, Jared Allen. This team is going to make some some noise in the East. and I'm excited to see them uh, compete. So just as I took a break between filming, you know, the first half of this recording it and then getting ready to do the second half, huge news within the NBA, which I'm going to get into. Maybe I'll finish talking about the NBA draft, then get into it. Huge news within the NBA. Kevin Durant has requested a trade out of Brooklyn, which means that realistically Kyrie Irving's going to be leaving Brooklyn as well. This is a monu- this could be a monumental day, a monumental moment in sports history if Kevin Durant were to be traded today on the same day that I mean, free agency begins today. I'm sure there's going to be huge deals being signed. I just heard uh, John Morant, Carl Anthony Towns, uh, both are expected to, to sign huge contracts uh, today. Devin Booker. This is going to be, in Nikola Jokic, this is going to be a huge day in NBA history. And part of it, if Kevin Durant were to be traded, no matter who signs where and who does what, Kevin Durant being traded, if he were to be traded today, would be a bigger headline than anything that happens here, no matter who signs where. No matter who gets what money and whatnot. Kevin Durant requesting a trade out of the Brooklyn Nets organization, which honestly... Things just didn't go didn't go their way. I mean, they obviously traded they traded for James Harden that didn't work out. They traded for Ben Simmons moving on from him that didn't work out. Kyrie Irving opts in. Days later, a couple days later now, Kevin Durant requests a trade. So clearly, he didn't want to play anymore with Kyrie, and I think he just figured it's time to to really rip this apart and tear things up and, and find a new home. And a very monumental moment in sports. 
Uh, as I said, I don't think there's any other player in sports history that was traded at this caliber, at this level. He's still in his prime, just averaged 29.9 points per game this past year. I don't know if there's any player in NBA history that's been traded at this level of their game in their prime, especially in today's day. I mean, he's going to get uh, the Brooklyn Nets GM, uh, Sean Box. He's going to get so much in return for, for Kevin Durant. It's going to be, as he said, he wants a historic return of picks and players, and he's going to get just that. Sean Box, the, the Nets GM, he has to do this right, though, because you're not going to trade a, a guy of Kevin Durant's caliber twice. You really have to get it right this one time. You're not going to, you know, if you were to get something you're not a fan of in return, there's no going back. You need to make sure you get this this trade right if you are the Brooklyn Nets. I'm excited to see what they were to get. Uh, but anyways, breaking news, Kevin Durant, as I said, I'll repeat, just requested a trade out of the Brooklyn Nets a little with over an hour ago. Uh, Adrian Wojnowski of ESPN said that already within that past hour, half the NBA has made calls to the Brooklyn Nets, which is unsurprising. I mean, Kevin Durant's a top two, top three player in the NBA. Uh, you know, whoever you want to order, who, LeBron, Giannis, Kevin Durant, I mean, that's the top three in my eyes. Um, it's going to be a huge day uh, in the NBA if he were to be traded today. I think they'll probably take another day or two. But uh, imagine him getting traded on the first day of free agency with guys like Kyle Anthony Towns getting, you know, max contracts. He's eligible for a four-year, $211 million extension. Uh, then you got Nikola Jokic, who's going to get a max deal today. Devin Booker, potentially, and John Morant, all reported. Uh, it's just absolutely nuts. This is going to be a huge day uh, in NBA history if Kevin Durant were to be traded on the first day of the NBA uh, free agency frenzy. So, uh, anyways, I'll get back into the NBA draft, and then, We'll get back into the breaking news of Kevin Durant, uh, and I'll give my news within the NBA, which this obviously takes over everything in all the sports. I mean, you listen to Felger Mass in 98.5, the Sports Hub, all they're talking about for the past hour is Kevin Durant. ESPN, all they're talking about now is Kevin Durant. You look at Twitter, social, any part of social media, Instagram, Twitter, everything is talking about Kevin Durant requesting a trade, and that just shows how good a player he is, too. I mean, he just he broke the internet. Uh, anyways, now I'm going to get to my losers of the NBA draft. Uh, quite a transition from Kevin Durant to this. Uh, considering, I mean, Kevin Durant is obviously a more important story than anything going on with the NBA draft at this rate. But anyways, uh, so I got a couple losers of the NBA draft. Only one real one, and then the other one uh, was just, you know, I would have taken one guy over the other. Uh, my first one is the New York Knicks. So the Knicks, you know, coming into the draft are 27th in the NBA field goal percentage, shooting 43.75% from the field. They were 26th in the NBA in scoring with 106.5 points per game. And then you look at it, they had a first-round pick at number 11 overall, and they decided to not do anything to improve the current state of this team. They traded out of the first round of the 11th pick, uh, ended up getting the 13th pick, and then traded that as well, which I'm going to break down all their moves. But they didn't have any help. This Knicks team has a lot of holes. I just said it scoring-wise, field goal percentage-wise, shooting-wise. I mean, and they did nothing to help that. Um... So Oklahoma City, with the 11th pick, uh, they were sent three future protected first-round picks by the Oklahoma City Thunder for the number 11 overall selection. Um, and those picks ended up being the Pistons and Wizards uh, first-round picks in 2023, the Bucks 2025 first-round pick. Um, and then the 2023 first-round pick from Detroit um, is a heavily protected one, 1 through 18 through in 2024, um, through 2024, and then protected 1 through 13 in 2025. And then protected one through eleven in twenty twenty six, and protected one through nine in twenty twenty seven. Then you look at the Washington Wizards twenty twenty three first round pick. Uh, that's protected one through fourteen in twenty twenty three, one through twelve in twenty twenty four, one through ten in twenty twenty five, 
and then one through eight in 2026. And then the last first round pick um, was via Denver, um, and that is protected one through 14 until 2025. So then the Knicks take four future second round picks in Denver's 2023 first round pick. They just got in that trade from Oklahoma City and traded to Charlotte for the 13th overall pick. And then the roller coaster of a draft night for the New York Knicks and Knicks fans in general, I feel bad. Honestly, that was a tough night. I mean, Knicks social media on Twitter, Instagram, I mean, their fans were just going nuts. The Knicks take that 13th overall pick that they just received from Charlotte and traded it to the Detroit Pistons, along with veteran point guard Kemba Walker. It's a salary dump. That's why they did it. For a 2025 Milwaukee's first-round pick. So they took that 13th pick and Kemba Walker and traded it to Detroit for a 2025 first-round pick. Um, the 13th overall pick ended up being uh, Jalen Duran uh, for the uh, Detroit Pistons. It was a great move by them. I think, honestly, the Knicks could have used them. Um, but anyways, the Knicks, all in all, on draft night, the Knicks ended up with, and this is all broken down by CBS Sports, a 2023 first-round pick via Detroit, a 2023 first-round pick via Washington, a 2025 first-round pick via Milwaukee, and then $18 million in cap space. So they got all of that in exchange uh, for that 11th overall pick, including you know trading it for the 13th and then trading Kemba Walker and and whatnot, but I think they really could have used a player in this draft to help the current state of the team, but uh, they're going all all in on trying to get Jalen Brunson, a point guard from the Mavericks, who I'm going to get into in a second. They're trying to clear enough cap space to get him a four-year, $100 million contract. Um, they got $18 million, uh in cap space on draft night, but if it were me, I would have wanted them, if I were a Nick fan, I would have wanted them to have taken a player at the 11th overall selection, but uh, that's just how, you know, the ball rolls sometimes. And I think the Knicks were a loser of the draft. And then the second team, Oklahoma City Thunder, I just praised, uh, Sam Preston, the GM for always doing so well with drafts and then also rebuilding. Um, and this isn't even like them being a loser. This is just my preference. Um, but I was a little bit down on the Jabari Smith on opting to draft Chet Holmgren over Jabari Smith. I expected, uh, you know, Smith, a lot of people expected him to be the number one overall pick for the majority of the weeks leading up to the NBA draft. Um, and then Houston getting him at number three was just nuts. I mean, the value there is just crazy, but especially to get, especially to pair him with Jalen Green, um, you know, last year's second overall pick. Um, and I do like what Oklahoma City did with the draft. I, I, you know, I, I, as I said, I think Jang was a good pick. Um, I think Jalen Williams even was a good pick. I think Chet Holmgren's a good player, but I would have taken Jabari Smith. I don't consider them a loser of the draft necessarily, but if I were the GM of the Thunder, I would have taken Jabari Smith. But I guess the only real loser of the draft that I had was the Knicks. And then the Thunder is just, I guess, the GM's eye. And Sam Presti liked Holmgren over Jabari Smith. That's just the way it goes sometimes. Anyways, now moving on. Uh, the NBA Summer League uh, was starting just about over a week on July 7th. Uh, so you'll be able to see all these guys play uh, for their teams. Uh, Juwan Begaron, the Celtics' second-round pick from 2021 is expected to play in the Celtics Summer League uh, team, which is exciting. Um, he's a French basketball player, as I said, that I talked about in my NBA draft preview. Um, I'm a big fan of his game. I think uh, he could be a future uh, piece of the Celtics team, you know, three years from now uh, as he continues to develop. Um, so now moving on to news within the NBA, the free agency frenzy, as I just said, Kevin Durant. I'm going to talk about this first, although, you know, it's probably – uh, it would have been if had I not, you know, been doing this live and seen Kevin Durant 
request a trade, you know, as I'm doing this, you know, in the middle of taking a break between uh, each half, I probably would have done my own episode on this whole Kevin Durant uh, situation. But uh, since I was recording this, I figured I'll do it now. And, and so Kevin Durant, I'll talk about first, since it's the most important. Uh, as I said before, just over an hour or so ago now, Kevin Durant requested a trade out of Brooklyn. Um, and in the matter of an hour, over half the league has already sent uh, calls in to the Brooklyn Nets GM, Sam Mox, which is unsurprising. Um, and according to Woj, um, it is expected and likely now that the Brooklyn Nets will also be losing Kyrie Irving um, just days after he opted in to hit the final year of his contract. Um, for Kevin Durant, two teams that are his preferred destinations, the Miami Heat and Phoenix Suns. Um, but I think Brooklyn will end up just taking the best trade package available, uh, and they don't really have to please Kevin Durant by trading up to what he wants. Um, since at the end of the day, this Brooklyn team doesn't even own their next four first-round picks. Uh, the Houston Rockets have or you know have the ability to swap with the Brooklyn Nets for their next four draft picks. So, so the Nets have really no incentive to tank, uh, which is the reason why I think they're just going to take the best trade package available that can help them still compete uh, and still be you know top eight team in the East to try to make the playoffs um, and maybe make some noise. Um, but whatever happens with Kevin Durant, I think will be one of the most monumental uh, moments in sports history because I don't think there's ever going to be a trade package as heavy as this one because there's not many superstars, which I was just listening to Brian Windhorst on ESPN, and he's right. There's not many superstars that ever request a trade at this level with four years left on their contract. Kevin Durant has four years left on his contract at $197.6 million left. So just about $50 million a year. But there's no, there's going to be no superstar, you know, for years to come probably that's going to request a trade at this level going, you know, still in their prime, going into, you know, four years left of their contract. Most guys that try to request a trade, like superstars, really only have one or two years left on their deal. Never really four. So Kevin Durant having four years left, I mean, this is why I think it could be a huge, huge day uh, in sports history. So it's a, a player of Kevin Durant's caliber too, I mean, you just think about it. He's a top three player in the league top 10 to top 15 player ever, one of the best one-on-one players ever too, uh, unstoppable offensively. I just wonder what teams are going to offer for him. I think I think it's going to take three players, like an all-star, two really good role players to young stars, and then also probably take three to four first-round picks. So let's say the Boston Celtics. I know a lot of people want the Celtics to try to make a move for which I don't think they're going to since it's going to cost a ton. But let's say I were the GM of the Celtics. And hypothetically, you know, this is what I think it's going to cost. I think it would cost the Celtics 2023, 2024, and 2025 first-round picks. So three first-round picks. It would cost one of these two, Jalen Brown or Jason Tatum. Realistically, you're not going to get Jason. You're not going to get Kevin Durant without trading Jalen Brown or Jason Tatum. The Nets are going to want one of them. That's a reality of it. Obviously, it's tough knowing one of them is going to have to go. But if you were to trade for him, Brown or Tatum, one of them has gone. Robert Williams will be gone as well. A young rim protector. The, the Nets need help, obviously, uh, in the paint. Especially if you're losing a power forward like Durant. And then also, even maybe Marcus Smart. I think that could be even included. I don't know you know, what other teams are offering, but I'm sure teams are throwing out their entire team and all their assets draft picks-wise and young stars-wise and all-stars-wise to try to make this happen. And I don't think the Nets are going to hand him away. He's still in his prime with four years left on his deal at around $197 million, so just about $50 million per year. And he's coming off a season where he averaged 29.9 points per game, 7.4 rebounds, 6.4 assists, 0.9 steals, 0.9 blocks, 
38.3% shooting from three and 518 shooting from the field. They're not going to trade him for nothing. And you have to think about this. If the Celtics were to trade for him, I think you're giving up more of your future than you're going to gain by getting Durant. I think Durant's a great player. As I said, a top three player in the NBA, top 10 to 12, 15-ish player ever. But I think if you're trading for Kevin Durant, I think it's too much to give up three or four first-round picks, probably Jalen Brown because I don't think they'd trade Jason Tatum. If I were to choose between who I'd trade, let's say, you know, it was my decision between Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum, I would trade Tatum and I'd keep Jalen Brown. Uh, you guys know that I've talked about it many times uh, on this podcast. I think Jalen Brown's a better player uh, and more of a team player as well. Tatum faded away completely in the NBA Finals. But that's the hard thing. It's just crazy to think about that if you want to trade for a superstar of this caliber, you have to give up just about your entire future of young players and draft picks. And who knows what the Nets are going to get. They're going to take the best offer available. And then they're also going to trade Kyrie Irving as well, I'm sure. And I just, as I'm speaking here, whoa, a report comes out that KD and Kyrie possibly teaming up again is almost certainly a possibility. Or it is certainly a possibility. They want to continue to play together, but the sense is they don't want to do it in Brooklyn anymore. Wow. I mean, this is going to be a wild NBA offseason. Uh, it's going to be wild next week. Of free agency and trades. I'm sure there's going to be a ton of offers and packages that have be, that are floating around on social media and Twitter and everything, but I'm really excited to see where Kevin Durant goes. Um, but as I said, I think if the Celtics were to do it, I think it costs more than what you're gaining with Kevin Durant since you're going to have to give up three firsts, Jalen Brown, Robert Williams, and maybe even Marcus Smart. Who knows? I mean, maybe even four first rounders. Who knows what Sean Mox is asking for, but as Woj said, he wants a historic return of players and picks. And you're not going to get a monumental superstar, a generational talent like Kevin Durant, without trading either Jason Tatum or Jalen Brown. I would trade Tatum, as I said, if I were to pick one. But I think at the end of the day, the Celtics hold still and don't make a move here. Even though, obviously, Kevin Durant likes Ime Odoka and is said to have liked Jason Tatum, I don't think the Celtics make a move here. Um, I think it's a very risky move, especially considering you're trading away your whole future. If you were not to win a championship... It's a complete bust of a trade. Whoever trades for Kevin Durant, they don't win a championship. I mean, that trade's an absolute bust. You have to win if you make this trade and give up that much. And who knows? I mean, the Phoenix Suns obviously have a good amount of young talent. The Miami Heat, I mean, the depth isn't really there. Uh, you know, there's some young pieces, but nothing crazy where they could make a... I think they can't trade. I saw they wouldn't be able to trade Bam Adebayo for Kevin Durant. So I don't think Tyler Hero and, you know, picks are, are enough to get... Kevin Durant to Miami. And then you look at the Suns. I think if the Suns were to trade for Kevin Durant, it's going to be a sign and trade. DeAndre Ayton, probably draft picks, a ton of draft picks, maybe another young piece or two. Uh, but I think if they were to make a trade, Kevin Durant, if he were to go to Phoenix, there's no way DeAndre Ayton's not in that day on a sign and trade, especially considering uh, the Phoenix Suns do not want to pay him $30 million a year or whatever his ballpark is. I think it's around 30 right now. Um, but anyways, Kevin Durant requesting a trade, biggest piece of news on the day, and uh, completely threw away my se- whole second half of this podcast since I thought I'll film the first half, you know, you know, take a break, come back 25 minutes later and, and get back into it. But I really took an hour off because it was all about Kevin Durant. I was listening to all, you know, everything Woj was saying and Felger and Maz on 98.5 The Sports Hub and what everyone's opinion was, and it really took me away. I mean, that's how big of a moment. This could be. 
in NBA history, trading a guy like Kevin Durant. Uh, you just probably won't see it again. And before I move on to other news within the NBA, because that's what this next segment was going to be, was news within the NBA. It was going to be about Russell Westbrook and Kyrie, you know, opting back in and John Wall to the Clippers. But the biggest piece of news, obviously, is Kevin Durant requesting a trade out of Brooklyn. And I thought about it. I, the teams that have the most likeliness of, of trying to get Kevin Durant right now, the teams with the most depth, and when we talk about depth, the L.A. Clippers come to mind more than any team in the NBA. I think they're the deepest team, 1-14, through 1-15 on the bench. And I think they could honestly make a trade for Kevin Durant without even giving up Paul George or Kawhi Leonard. There's a, that's how deep they are. If they were to take a young player like Terrence Mann, who's developing into a very good player, Luke Kennard, who has had the highest three-point field goal percentage in the NBA last year at 47%, and then they were to take, let's say, another young piece, like Amir Coffey, let's say, if they were to get him on a new deal, and then Norman Powell. I think if they took Norman Powell, Terrence Mann, Luke Kennard, and maybe that, that I mean, who knows? Probably one more piece. Let's say Robert Covington. Robert Covington, Norman Powell, Luke Kennard, and Terrence Mann. So four really good players. I don't want to do this trade of the clips. I would not do this. I'm just saying they could honestly do it without giving Kevin Durant or, uh, excuse me, they could do this without Paul George or Kawhi Leonard and get Kevin Durant in L.A. And then they could give their 2027, 2028 first-round picks, maybe even 2029. Who knows? But I wouldn't do this deal if I were the Clippers. Let's say it were to be, let's say the the deal that the Brooklyn Nets wanted was Terrence Mann, Luke Kennard, Robert Covington, and Norman Powell with two first rounders, 2027 to 2028. I don't do that. I honestly don't think I'd do it in general just because I feel like this Clippers team can win without him. But the point of what I'm saying is they have a chance. They could honestly get him without even giving Kevin Durant, without even getting Paul George or Kawhi Leonard in that deal. The Brooklyn Nets could honestly just ask for those three to four role players to stars, whatever you want to consider them. I mean, I'd probably hire on them the most just because I like the Clippers. And then also two future firsts. That could probably do it. But as I said, if I were the Clippers, I would not trade a package of Norman Powell, Luke Kennard, Terrence Mann, and three first-round picks, and maybe even Robert Covington. I wouldn't do that, deal. But, I mean, there's a chance. Who knows? I'm sure everyone's throwing offers right now for Kevin Durant, because why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you give an offer for Kevin Durant? If you're if you're an NBA GM, I'm sure everyone's on that phone right now trying to figure out a way to get him on their respective team. That's how good he is. If you're an NBA GM and you're not at least trying to call to the call to the Brooklyn Nets and see what they would want in return, and at least just fielding offers in return and just you know listening and doing your due diligence, you're not doing your job. If you're an NBA GM and you're not at least trying to get Kevin Durant on your respective team and just listening to what it would be in return, you're really not doing your job of trying to improve your team. But at the end of the day, I'm sure everyone's throwing off his out because why wouldn't you for Kevin Durant? So now I'm going to move into my segment of news within the NBA besides the Kevin Durant uh, request for a trade. Um, And that starts with Russell Westbrook exercised his option for the 2022-2023 NBA season. He's got a $47.1 million option to return to the Lakers this year, uh, which is the second highest um, salary in the NBA this year. First is Steph Curry, and then Russell Westbrook's at number two. Um, the Lakers have been trying to trade him, but uh, it is expected now over the last day or so they're going to keep him from reports. Um, and check out my seventh episode. You want to see how much I support Russ? Because I don't want to get into the whole segment again since I already gave you know, a 10 to 15 minute run about why Russell Westbrook is not the problem in LA. Go listen to it. It's in my seventh episode. The timestamp's there too. Um, 
But anyways, Russell Westbrook exercises option for this season. Um, as I said a couple days ago, Kyrie Irving opted into his 2022-2023 uh, season option for this year to return to Brooklyn. Um, but he still technically can be traded. I know I said in my episode that's unlikely that they trade him, but he still can be traded. And now with Kevin Durant opting out, or Kevin Durant requesting a trade, and Kyrie Irving, now he can't opt out, he'd have to be traded. I think the likelihood of him being a Brooklyn Net is like 10%. I think I think he's gone. I think Kevin Durant's gone, obviously. Um, I think Kyrie Irving will be on another team. I think he played his last games of Brooklyn Net. I think Kevin Durant obviously did too. Um, but I think Kyrie Irving, a 10% chance he returns to Brooklyn. Um, still technically under contract for this year since he opted in, so it would have to be a trade. Uh, but I don't see him being a net if Kevin Durant isn't there. Um, and so this could be the end. This is this is the end of the Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving era in Brooklyn. Um, they finished their career together with six playoff wins together, seven playoff losses, and only one series win with both of them on the same team and, you know, both healthy on the floor. So that's an absolute disaster, especially considering the high expectations the Nets had after getting these two guys. When you get Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving, your expectations are to win at least one championship, maybe two or three. And they only won one playoff series together. I mean, that's an absolute failure. And then you look at it. Failure, obviously not winning. They don't really have young pieces to even uh, to compete for a championship now. If you trade those two guys, I mean, they're going to get guys in return, but they're not going to be a contender. And then they don't have any draft picks, so they traded them all to the Houston Rockets to get James Harden. So I don't know what the Brooklyn Nets are going to do. Um, I'm sure they're going to try to get a ton of return just to be able to compete since they don't really have any incentive to try to lose games or tank to try to get a higher draft pick since Houston owns all of them. Uh, the next four has the rights to the next four first picks or a draft swap. Uh, so it'll be very interesting to see what happens there, but the end of an era in Brooklyn. Now moving on to the LA Clippers signing point guard, John Wall. Uh, after he clears waivers, after being bought out by the Houston Rockets, uh, I believe his deal for this upcoming season, he opted into a deal for $47 million, which I mentioned in a, an episode or two ago now. He opted into his deal for $47 million, um, and then he negotiated a buyout with them, gave up $6 million in order to be bought out. After he clears waivers, he is expected to sign with the LA Clippers. Um, and I think he's the point guard this Clippers team really needed alongside Reggie Jackson, um, since they really only had one true point guard on the roster that would get quality minutes. I don't think Jason, Jason Preston was really going to get any, but... I think Tyron Lue is the perfect coach for John Wall to try to revive his career. If you look at it, Nick Batum went to the Clippers almost at the end of his career, completely revived his career. Reggie Jackson as well thought he was going to retire You know when he was with the Pistons. Goes to the Clippers because Paul George gives him a call. Ends up saving his career. If you look at it, the LA Clippers really are like a, a safe haven for guys that are trying to revive their career and get back on track. And I think John Wall is in a perfect position to get himself back into the NBA, back into talks of being, you know, one of the shiftiest, fastest point guards in the league. I don't think he's going to be the exact same player, but his blazing speed before all the injuries was nuts, and I think he can still be a really good point guard. Um, so I'm excited to see him in a Clippers uniform. Uh, next with the LA Clippers, Isaiah Hottenstein is favored to land with the Orlando Magic. Um, I still want the Clippers to keep him, though. Uh, Terrence Mann was reportedly... Uh, saying on Twitter that he's been his, he's been in, in Hartenstein's corner trying to get him back to L.A. Um, supposedly, Hartenstein wants to return to the Clippers and, he, and even posted himself yesterday working out uh, on his Instagram, shooting around in a Clippers shirt and Clippers shorts. Um, so working out Clippers gear yesterday, I thought was a good sign for him to return. 
Um, but I guess Orlando's offering him around four years, $32 million, about $8 million a year. And the Clippers can only offer him reportedly only two to three million per year, um, or two to three million for this upcoming season. Then after that, he could be eligible for a bigger extension. And we all know Steve Ballmer has the money, the Clippers owner, richest owner in the NBA by far, one of nine people in America with $100 billion, which I just learned yesterday. Um, but he has the money to spend, but obviously the cap space would be the issue. And I think after this year, he could be eligible for a bigger contract. But uh, if he were to come back to the Clippers, it'd be on a smaller deal maybe two or three million, he'd be sacrificing, you know, probably $30 million since they'd get around $32 million over four years in Orlando. But I think him wanting to go back to the Clippers and sacrificing 20 to $30 million extra in guaranteed money is a testament to how good of a coach Tyron Lue is and how much the players have bought in to the LA Clippers locker room. If guys want to go back to the Clippers and try to win a championship and compete and, and fight for one another every single night, and are willing to sacrifice $30 million when Hartenstein really hasn't even gotten a big contract yet in his career. That's really just a testament, as I said, to how good of a coach Tyron Lue is and how Steve Ballmer stepped, set up this team to succeed. Guys want to go back to the Clippers and lose out on $30 million when they haven't even gotten paid over their career because they want to stay in L.A. and stay in a Clippers uniform? That just shows how the Clippers really have something special in L.A. If Hartenstein's even considering, even if he doesn't go back to the Clippers, him considering going back to the Clippers right now and giving up 25 to $30 million extra just for a chance to stay a Clipper is a really reassuring sign to me as a Clippers fan saying that things are really special in LA and guys want to stay on the Clippers. They don't want to leave. Nick Batum doesn't want to leave. He's reportedly um, working on a three-year $30 million contract extension, which is an official um, and then the Clippers just re-signed Avica Zubats, starting center to a three-year, $33 million extension. Zubats is coming off a really nice season for uh, the Clippers, 10.3 points per game, 8.3 rebounds, a block per game, and started in all 76 games he appeared in. Um, stayed healthy for the most part this year, too, which was really good for that Clippers starting lineup since obviously not having Kawhi Leonard, Paul George, and uh, Norman Powell for majority of the season. There's a lot of mismatching uh, with those starting lineups, but Nick Batum, Reggie Jackson, and Avica Zubats were, for the most part, staples in that starting lineup. We're usually always healthy and in it. Um, anyways, as I said before, I think the Clippers have the most depth in the NBA. And I think it's really amazing when you think about it. They just signed John Wall. He might not even start on this Clippers team. He might be the sixth man. Or if he were to start, Reggie Jackson would be the, probably the sixth man. I think right now this Clippers team is set up to win the NBA Finals. I think they are the favorite in my eyes. I can't think of another team in the NBA or sports in general that are this deep. The depth on this Clippers team is absolutely nuts. Let's say right now the starting lineup is Reggie Jackson at point guard, Norman Powell at shooting guard, Paul George at small forward, Kawhi Leonard at power forward, and Avica Zubats at center. Your bench includes Robert Covington, Terrence Mann, John Wall, Luke Kennard, Nick Batum, Amir Coffey, Marcus Morris Sr., Brandon Boston Jr., and Musa Diabate. And maybe even Isaiah Hartenstein if you were to stay with the Clippers. Take away the last two guys, because I don't know if Brandon Boston Jr. and Moose Diabate are going to get that many minutes. But 1 through 13 that I just named, let's say Diabate and, and, and Boston Jr. are the 14 and 15 on the bench. 1 through 13 is the most depth and the most talent I've ever seen on a single team. From superstars with Paul George and Kawhi Leonard, to stars like Norman Powell, and then to great role players like Reggie Jackson and Luke Kennard. 
and Terrence Mann and Amir Coffey and Marcus Morris Sr. This team, and, and John Wall even, if you want to consider John Wall a star, we'll put him in the star category because when he's healthy, I think he's a really good point guard. So stars, Norman Powell and John Wall, and then you've got great role players, Robert Covington, Terrence Mann, Luke Kennard, Nick Batum, Marcus Morris Sr. This team is set up to succeed for years to come. And I think the Clippers GM, Michael Winger, and, and the owner, Steve Vama, have done an amazing job. Credit to the front office for building this team, the deepest NBA team I've ever seen. I don't even think it's a question. The most bench pieces on a single team I've ever seen. And Baumler's a great guy too. Steve Baum is a, a terrific guy. He actually just rebuilt and renovated over 350 basketball courts in L.A. Um, over the last four years. Um, he cares heavily for the community um, and giving back to the people of L.A., uh, and he said in an interview, you know, they had a whole ceremony for it. Musa Diabate was there. He got introduced as a clipper. Um, and he said, you know, if we make a few fans along the way by building new parks and everything, then so be it. But, you know, our job is to try to win championships and be there for the community. And he's right. I mean, he's doing that. And that, that's paraphrased um, what he just said. But he's done a great job as the, as the Clippers owner. And I, I, mean, I don't see many owners with that, many, that much excitement, too. He brings energy. He's excited. I'm excited to see this Clippers team. Um, he's done a great job, and then Michael Winger, obviously being the GM, has done awesome. But as I said, only five guys can be on the court at once, and the Clippers have a rotation of 10 to 12 guys, so seven guys on their bench basically, eight guys on their bench, that can give you 20 points on any single night. They have that many weapons that this team literally could just sit guys. You know, Kawhi Leonard will be getting his nights off in the regular season because of how much depth that this Clippers team has. He doesn't have to play every night. Paul George, too. This Clippers team just has to make the NBA playoffs and be healthy when the playoffs come. Who cares about the regular season and winning uh, you know, as many games in the regular season as they need? If they make the playoffs, they don't need to be the one seed or the two seed or three seed. They'll be dangerous no matter where they are in the Western Conference Finals uh, playoff landscape. And if they stay healthy, I think they win the NBA Finals. It's as simple as that. Stay healthy, they will win the NBA Finals. Stay healthy when the playoffs come. That's more important, though, obviously. Because if they're, if they're hurt when the playoffs come and they're healthy for the whole regular season, what's it worth? The playoffs is when everything matters. And I don't care, I don't care as much about the regular season because they have so much depth. I mean, they could sit Kawhi Leonard two or four games a week and still win and still be fine. And I love how high this team fights. That's another thing I want to talk about. It's a testament of how good of a coach Tyron Lue is with how much this Clippers team fought last year without Paul George, Kawhi Leonard, and Norman Powell hurt for most of the season. And they went 42-40. and 40. It's just absolutely nuts. You watch a Clippers game, you will see a team fight for loose balls, dive on loose balls, go for every single rebound, get back on defense, try to eliminate fast breaks. You, there are no teams that try as, as hard as the Clippers, and that's a testament to how good of a coach Tyron Lue is, and I think he should have been considered more for Coach of the Year than he was. But I think he'll get more attention for it this year, and I think he deserves that. Um, but as I said, there's something about this Clippers team that no other team I'm a fan of has. And it's a drive to give 110% effort and energy on every single play on a nightly basis. 110% energy, 110% effort. They give everything they can. Very gritty team, and they'll do anything they can to try to eke out a win. And that's why I love this Clippers team. I really am excited to see them grow in the future and see this team compete. I think they win the NBA Finals. I don't care what happens with Kevin Durant. I don't care where he goes. I think this Clippers team is still the favorite in my eyes to win. Since whatever any team's giving up to get Kevin Durant, they're going to be giving up a lot anyways. To get Kevin Durant, you're going to give up a ton of young talent that you have. And I just saw a report that if the 
Phoenix Suns were to want Kevin Durant, they're not getting him without not giving up Devin Booker. So if you want Kevin Durant, you have to give up Devin Booker, and they're not going to do that realistically. So that's it. At the end of the day, if you want Kevin Durant, you're going to have to give up a ton. I think this Clippers team's set up to win now without him. I don't think they need to even make a move for him. And whatever team makes a move for him is going to be giving up a ton. Obviously, Kevin Durant's a very good player, but what you're giving up in return for him sometimes doesn't even out what you're getting in value. Especially, let's say, if you were to get hurt, I mean, you lose everything. It's win or bust if you get Kevin Durant. If you don't win the NBA Finals, you know, in the four years he's there, maybe two of them you need, could be a bust, honestly. Anyways, now I'm going to move on to my next part um, of the NBA free agency frenzy. Sixes star guard James Harden, who they traded for in February in a deal with the Brooklyn Nets, declined his $47.3 million option for this upcoming season. Um, very likely to still re-sign with Philadelphia on a restructured and cheaper deal uh, to allow cap space flexibility. He wants to win now more than ever. And so he figures if I can give this team a little bit more cap space to get another role player or two on the bench, then why not do it? And I respect that. Next, the Spurs traded their star point guard DeJounte Murray to the Atlanta Hawks of Danilo Gallinari, who is expected to be bought out by the San Antonio Spurs. The Bulls, Heat, and Celtics are all expected to pursue him after he's waived. Um, the Spurs got... Danilo Gallinari, two unprotected first-round picks in 2025 and 2027, a 2023 protected first-round pick, and a 2026 pick swap. So a 2026 pick swap, two unprotected first-round picks in 2025 and 2027, a 2023 protected first-round pick, and then Danilo Gallinari, who they're expected to buy out. Um, he was rumored to be traded by San Antonio yesterday. It was reported that it's trending in that direction. Um, then out of nowhere, he ends up being traded um, in a blink. Um, Murray's coming off. The best season of his career, prolific, 21.2 points per game, 8.3 rebounds, 9.2 assists, and 2 steals per game. That's a career high in points, rebounds, and assists per game. And then he was also best in the NBA with 2 steals per game. DeJounte Murray joins a potential starting lineup of John Collins, Trey Young, Clint Capella, and DeAndre Hunter. And that's a great young starting lineup there. Um, I think Atlanta could make a run in the Eastern Conference. I, I think... Now people are starting to pick them uh, to be a little bit high. I think they could still be probably a four or five seed. Um, Murray is coming off a career season, as I said. Second most triple doubles in the NBA last year. He's got two years left on his contract at $16.6 million and $17.7 million, uh, according to Bobby Mox of ESPN. So they have a little cap space flexibility there since he's only making $33 million combined over the next two seasons or $34 million over the next two seasons. So a little bit of cap space flexibility there to maybe – add another role player or two before they have to give him a new contract. Um, but as I said, Jones, a nice young starting lineup of Trey Young, John Collins, Clint Capella. Uh, he's obviously the oldest one there in the DeAndre Hunter, but uh, that's a solid lineup there. I think they could make some noise in the Eastern Conference. Um, so with that trade, uh, Greg Popovich still will return to the Spurs for his 27th year as head coach. I guess he gave his blessing to trade Murray. I guess they asked in the front office. Um, Popovich's Spurs last year with 34-48. Still were good enough to make a play-in game at 34-48. and 48. With the way the NBA set up, I mean, you could be 10 to 12 games out of 500 and still have a chance of making the playoffs. But now they're in line for a big rebuild um, and to potentially tank this next year to try to draft French center, the number one prospect in the 2023 NBA draft, Victor Wambanyana. He's a 7-2, center from France. Um, he's highly regarded right now as the best basketball prospect in the world. Um, and he could be the potential next first overall pick, which he'd be the first European First overall pick since Andrea Bagnani, uh, who was drafted first overall in 2006 by the Raptors. So he could potentially make history by being the first number one overall pick, European player, European-born player, number one overall since Andrea Bagnani. 
uh, who's an Italian. Um, Wambanyana, obviously a French guy, as I said. Um, but I'm definitely interested to see how the Spurs play next year. They're always competitive, even you know this year being 34-48. They're always going to play the game the right way because of how good of a coach Greg Popovich is. So they'll probably have a lot of respect about 10 to 15-point losses next year just to try to tank and try to get uh, Wambanyana, as I said. He's a very good prospect. Um, it could be potentially the next number one overall uh, European first pick, the first one since 2006, I said. So uh, really cool story there. Next, I want to move on to the Washington Wizards. Star shooting guard Bradley Beal declined his $36.4 million option for this season. He's eligible for a five-year max with Washington, or he could get a four-year deal with any other team. Um, but as of now, he's still expected to return to Washington. I know the Celtics were interested in him before um, because of how good a friends he is with Jason Tatum, both of them being from St. Louis. Um, I just thought about this, though. What happens if a team were to take an L.A. Clippers sort of route and use a signing of a Bradley Beal or use a trade of Kevin Durant in order to lure a player like Bradley Beal to their franchise and do what the Clippers did by trading for Paul George in order for Kawhi Leonard to sign with the Clippers because that was what Paul George wanted. Kawhi Leonard wanted was, you make that trade to get Paul George, I will be an L.A. Clipper. I'll sign with you. What is if a team were to do that and say, if Bradley Beal were to say, if you trade for Kevin Durant, I'll sign there. I think that's a very interesting uh, story if that were to happen. But I think he returns to Washington. I think he's a very loyal player. I don't think he wants to leave. Um, next up, uh, Celtics assistant coach from this past season, Will Hardy, agreed to a five-year contract to become the new head coach of the Utah Jazz. Uh, he now becomes the youngest head coach in the NBA at only 34 years old. Uh, he was the assistant coach with the Spurs uh, for four years, one year with the Celtics um, under Ime Udoka. And now joins Danny Ainge, who obviously the former Celtics GM, uh, is now the CEO and alternate team governor of the Utah Jazz. Last thing I want to talk about, the New York Knicks, once again, making storylines. Um, the New York Knicks traded Nerlens Noel, Alec Burks, a 2023 and a 2024 second round pick, along with $6 million to the Detroit Pistons for two future second rounders and cash considerations. The Knicks saved up $28 million by moving Noel, Burke, and Kemba Walker, who will be bought out by Detroit, they say. Uh, so Kemba Walker will be looking for another home once once again. Um, so they were all traded to the Pistons, Burks, Noel, Kemba. Um, but the Knicks end up saving $28 million. Um, and now they're expected to be saving that cap space to try to sign Mavericks point guard Jalen Brunson. Uh, right now, reportedly, um, he is signing with the New York Knicks for a four-year, $105 million deal. Um, he's coming off a very good season at 16.3 points per game, 3.9 rebounds, 4.8 assists, shooting 37.3% from three and 50.2% from the field. The Knicks have been trying to get cap space now for the past week to try to move, um, cap space around to try to get him. So, uh, not surprised they're signing him. He's coming off a good year. I guess they expect him to be the centerpiece of the team now, especially if you're moving all that cap space to try to get him uh, and paying him all that money. Um, so we'll see how it works out with him in New York. Now moving on to the NFL, as I said, I want to give some news uh, on the free agency market. Um, wide receiver Odell Beckham Jr. is still a free agent. Teams expect him to still be out until October, November. Um, he's coming off a year with the LA Rams where he played eight games, had 27 catches for 305 yards and five touchdowns. He was 21 catches for 288 yards and two touchdowns in the postseason. Uh, this past year contributed heavily to an LA Rams Super Bowl win. Uh, without him, I don't know if they would have won it. He had a touchdown in the Super Bowl and was great uh, ever since they picked him up. Three-time Pro Bowl wide receiver. I still see him as a potential wide receiver, too, and healthy. And that's an elite wide receiver, too, with potential wide receiver one upside. That's how much I love Odell. I'll always see him 
uh, as a star he was in New York, and I wish he was back as a Giant, but it uh, just seems like uh, that won't be possible. Moving on now, Washington wide receiver Terry McLaurin signed a three-year extension with the Commanders uh, to make him a top-five paid wide receiver in the NFL. Three-year deal worth up to $71 million a year with a $23.3 average million, uh, million dollar average annual value. Uh, so 23.3 mil per year for him, uh, 76.4% of it's guaranteed. Uh, he's only missed three games uh, in his three-year career, um, so he's always on the field. You can count on him to be accountable and out there and healthy. Uh, the former second-round pick out of Ohio State um, has not missed a game in his last two seasons, so the three games he missed were in his first year. He's had back-to-back 1,000-yard seasons. He's coming off a good season uh, last year with 77 catches for 1,053 yards and five touchdowns. Um, he had a better year, his rookie year touchdowns-wise, productions-wise there, um, had seven touchdown receptions as a rookie in 2019, um, and I've been a fan of him ever since his rookie year, honestly. Uh, Mike Curley, the sports guru, really got me into him, and got me to become a huge fan of him, I believe it was since week one of the 2019 uh, season, when he was trying to figure out the waiver line, who to pick up um, for fantasy football, and ever since then, we've become big fans of him, and I love the way he plays, and love the way he fights, so... I'm excited to see him uh, ball out now for Washington. Even though he plays the Giants, I can still be a fan of him and draft him in fantasy just because of how much of a great player he is. Um, Now moving on, veteran quarterback Ryan Fitzpatrick called it a career after 17 years in the NFL. The former Harvard quarterback was a journeyman in the league, uh, former 2004 uh, Ivy League Player of the Year, uh, but made himself a great career. Um, He had the most consecutive games of 400 passing yards to begin a season, uh, which was three. The most consecutive games of 400 passing yards, which is three, both of those coming in the 2018 season. He's the first quarterback ever to throw four touchdowns in a game uh, for five different teams. So the Buffalo Bills, Houston Texans, Tennessee Titans, Tampa Bay Bucks, and New York Jets. Eight-time Offensive Player of the Week, five times in the AFC, three times in the NFC. Started for nine different teams, which is the most ever by a quarterback. Uh, and then you look at it, he also was a very intelligent quarterback. He had the highest one-to-lick score uh, for quarterback ever, scored a 48 out of 49. The Wonderlick test is a way that they test uh, quarterbacks for the most part, their intelligence. They give them uh, 49 questions and scenarios they have to answer. And uh, he actually has the highest Wonderlick score for quarterback ever, of a score of 48 out of 49. Um, he was also an economics major at Harvard, so I'm an economics major myself. So a uh, little bit of soft spot for him there too. Um, but a very interesting uh, journey for him as a, as a quarterback in the NFL. Made a great run out of it, and I'm wishing him nothing but the best uh, in his future now with Amazon as a pregame analyst for Thursday Night Football. Uh, Fitzmagic will always be an NFL legend, especially considering you could get a Fitzmagic that's a top three quarterback in the NFL one week, and then a Fitz Tragic who's a bottom three quarterback in the NFL the next week. But uh, he always kept things exciting. Um, and I'm looking forward to seeing him as a reporter uh, and pregame analyst now uh, for Amazon for Thursday Night Football next year. Next, uh, tight end Rob Gronkowski uh, retired at 33, his second time uh, now retiring. Now he's 33 years old, so I think it's a little bit more believable uh, with him retiring now. Uh, The four-time Super Bowl champion as well as four-time all-pro selection and five-time Pro Bowl that calls it a career. Um, He actually has the most receiving touchdowns in a single season by a tight end, uh, which is 17. He had that in 2011. Uh, He has the most career touchdowns in the postseason by a tight end, which is 15. The most 100-yard games by a tight end in NFL history, uh, which is 32. Most touchdowns in a season by a tight end, which is 18. Uh, most 100-yard games, as I said, uh, by a tight end in NFL history with 32. Most receptions by a tight end in Super Bowl history with 23. Uh, most receiving yards by a tight end in Super Bowl history with 297. And then also has the most career receiving touchdowns by a tight end 
in the postseason with 15. Um, then also him and Brady have the most career postseason receiving touchdowns between a quarterback and a receiver, and that's 15. Obviously him playing with Brady for years in, in New England and then also making the trip down uh, to revive his career with the Tampa Bay Bucks and also win a Super Bowl out of it um, in his first year back. But anyways, uh, all those statistics there come from uh, Wikipedia, uh, Gronk's Wikipedia page. But hell of a career for Gronkowski. Same thing with Ryan Fitzpatrick too. Um, I think both of them had a lot of big moments. Obviously, Gronkowski is more historic than Fitzpatrick. I'm just I just like Fitzmagic. Um, but two storylines there. Congratulations to both of them on great careers. Obviously, Gronk's a legend, um, and I'm sure football won't be the same without him. I'm sure, the locker rooms won't be the same without him either. He's a character. Um, anyways, now moving on to my last segment: news within the MLB. Um, I mentioned in my last episode that the Angels' offense literally is all Trout and Otani. Um, and that was displayed heavily in their loss a few nights ago now to the White Sox. Otani was 3-of-3 three three with two doubles, a solo home run. That home run coming after a trout home run, so they went back-to-back in the third inning off one of my favorite pitches in baseball, Johnny Cueto. Um, Otani also had two RBIs in a base on ball, so he had three hits, 3-for-3 three three with two doubles, a solo home run, and also a walk. So he was 4-for-4 four four on base. Then you look at Trout, he was 1-for-4 with an RBI with a solo home run. The Angels still lost that game 11-4, to and that's just a story of the Angels' season. You're getting production out of those two guys, and they don't have enough to win from the rest. But Otani last night did respond well for that Angels team. He led the Halos to a 4-1 to victory in their season uh, in their series finale against the Chicago White Sox. Uh, Otani went five and two-thirds innings on the mound, gave up five hits, no runs, one walk, 11 strikeouts. He lowered his season ERA to 2.68. Um, Otani since June 9th, which I saw very interesting statistic here. Uh, since June 9th, when the LA Angels snapped their 14-game losing streak, um, when Otani was on the mound against the Red Sox, in 18 games since June 9th, since that day when they snapped that streak, Otani is 22-64 at the plate with a 344 batting average, four doubles, six home runs, a triple, 17 runs batted in, with a 1155 OPS and 14 walks drawn. Then you look at him on the mound, dominant also, 4-0 since that day on June 9th when he snapped that losing streak for the Angels versus the Red Sox. And one interesting thing I saw was that Shohei Otani in this month of June has had an 11-game hit streak, has a career-high eight runs batted in, and that came on June 21st versus the Royals. And the next night he was on the mound and had a career-high in strikeouts with 13 strikeouts on June 22nd versus the Royals, has the hottest-hit home run of his career on June 25th versus Seattle, 118 miles per off the bat, absolute rocket, and then also has 21 and two-thirds consecutive scoreless innings and counting which is the longest streak of his MLB career. And you want to know what the Angels' record is over that streak in June? 10 and 18. It's not Trout's fault. It's not Otani's fault. They're doing everything they can on a nightly basis to try to keep this team afloat. And things just aren't going their way. I mean, if you look at it, they had a brawl versus the Seattle Mariners on this past weekend. Um, one night, I think it was a Saturday night game, uh, the Angels... Uh, were upset when Mike Trout was thrown high and inside on uh, by a Mariners pitcher. It didn't hit Trout, but going high and inside on the best player baseball you never should do and never should want to do, um, especially with Trout's so good. I mean, you can't hit him and take him out of the game, especially considering baseball needs Trout healthy. Um, anyways, the next day, Jesse Winker was hit by a pitch, um, and that started a whole incident, uh, pushing and shoving between the two teams. Benches cleared. Anthony Rendon is in the middle of a mix with a cast on his right hand um, after he just got season-ending surgery. Um, he's in there throwing lefty punches and shoving people. Then you got Angels reliever Archie Bradley, who fell over the railing of the dugout uh, trying to rush into the brawl. 
ends up hurting his wrist or his arm, and now he's out at least four weeks. You have eight ejections and 12 suspensions in that game. Your, your manager, the Angels' manager, got suspended for 10 games. Jesse Winker, the guy that was hit on the Meredith, suspended seven games. J.P. Crawford, Anthony Rodone, five games. Uh, between the two teams, eight ejections, 12 suspensions. Um, things just get worse for the Angels. You lose your manager for 10 days, and then also Archie Bradley, who's having an okay season as a reliever. I think he has around a 4-5 ERA, is now out at least four weeks because he's trying to jump over the railing and hurts himself. They just can't catch a break in L.A. Um, it's unfortunate. Next, Freddie Freeman had a very emotional return to Atlanta. Um, his first game back in Atlanta since signing his monster contract with the Dodgers. Um, he was very emotional. Uh, the Braves gave him actually a great uh, ceremony and standing ovation. Um, they gave him his World Series ring, which is really special as well. But what was interesting to me was that after the whole weekend series ended and after he had you know, his, his few emotional games and uh, talked to the media or even had to take a break talking to the media before we talked to them on the Friday um, afternoon before the game since uh, his emotions uh, overtook him, he fired his agent and his management. Excel management, he fired on Monday, and then also his agent, Casey Close. And it was reported that I guess they never told him the Atlanta Braves' final offer con- you know, contract offer to him before he signed with the Dodgers. And I guess it would have been a similar amount, at least enough for Freddie Freeman to have returned to Atlanta. And so Freeman fired his management and fired his agent. And I completely agree with it. And I said I'd give my opinion on it. I completely agree with that. I would fire my, man- my management too. If you see how emotional he was, you could tell he still wanted to be an Atlanta Brave. He didn't want to leave. He didn't want to leave. And, and you look at in his return to Atlanta. He couldn't even talk to the media on that Friday before the games even started because he said it was too much for him. And he actually had a really good weekend series, even including all his emotions. You know, he's 4 of 12, hit 333 with three walks, had a, a 467 on base percentage in the series, had a double in RBI, uh, did strike out 6 out of 12 at-bats, so 6 out of 15 plate appearances. But the Dodgers won 2 out of 3 games. But you could just tell his emotions overtook him. He didn't want to be a Dodger. He wanted to be a Brave. And after he spent 12 years creating a legacy with the Atlanta Braves and becoming so close with the fans and winning a World Series ring with them. You don't want to leave. So I would find my management too. I'm happy he did, and I, and I feel bad for him, truly, because I think he wants to still be an Atlanta Brave. I don't think he wanted to be a Dodger, which is tough. It's tough on both sides now. It's tough for him because now he has to you know, play until, let's see when he's under contract still. He's under contract still until 2028. So the next six years. He's under contract. The next time he's a free agent, he'll be 38 years old. So at the end of his career. So it's tough for the Dodgers and it's tough for him. It's tough for both of them. But now he has to persevere and try to play through it, which is unfortunate. Anyways, now moving on, Bryce Hopper. He's out six to eight weeks after taking a 97-mile-an-hour fastball off his thumb. The pitch actually fractured his thumb and he just underwent surgery on it. Uh, the 2021 NL MVP. Was having a good year before the injury. Um, was hitting 318 with 15 home runs and 985 OPS, 9 stolen bases, 21 doubles, and 48 runs batted in. Very tough to see him uh, be out of the game, not be healthy. As I said, it's kind of like Mike Trout. Uh, when your stars are not healthy and aren't in the game, the game's just not the same. Sports in general are better when the stars of their individual games are healthy. So a guy like Bryce Hobbit being out for 6 to 8 weeks um, is never a good thing for the game of baseball. The game's always more exciting with him playing. And then you look at how much of an impact he has on the Phillies. The Phillies are 4-6 and six in their last 10 without him, so they really need him. Um, 
hoping he gets back sooner than six to eight weeks, but it uh, doesn't look great, especially considering there's not many games left after he gets back from six to eight weeks. I mean, it's not going to be much of the season left. So uh, hopefully the, the Phillies can stay afloat uh, with him out. Next, moving on, uh, Alex Rodugo had a very clutch two-run double last night, extra innings uh, to avoid a Blue Jays sweep of the Red Sox in Toronto. Uh, tensions were high in that game when Nick Pavetta uh, hit the Jays catcher, Alejandro Kirk. Um, the benches actually cleared. There were no punches or anything thrown, but tensions were heavy in the game, so the Red Sox winning that game was huge. Um, Verdugo is on a 10-game hit streak right now, has multiple hits in five of his last six games. He is hitting 16 for 39 over his last 10 games with three doubles, two home runs, 10 runs batted in, hitting 410 with a 1118 OPS. Um, since May 19th, so that's over 35-game stretch, Verdugo is hitting 321, 45 of 140, with an 846 OPS, three home runs, 27 RBIs, and 12 doubles. Um, so it's great to see him starting to get hot again. The Red Sox really need him uh, back to that 300 uh, average, especially considering how good he hits with runners in scoring position. When he's on his A game, this Red Sox lineup is a lot more dangerous. And one last piece of Red Sox information, Chris Sale make another rehab start tonight for the Portland Sea Dogs. I'll update you guys on how that goes. Um, there's just another report that Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant still want to play together, as I said. Um, so I mentioned this already. They still want to play together, but potentially for another city uh, or another team. And I just don't think you can put both of them in the same trade. Um, but now I'm hearing that uh, Kyrie Irving uh, is a potential uh, guy to pay, keep your eye on for the LA Clippers to pursue, according to Brian Windhorst. And I would not want that. I think he ruins the dog mentality of that Clippers locker room. Uh, that Clippers locker room, as I said, has a winning culture right now that I don't think you can mess with. Uh, and I would not put Kyrie Irving in that uh, in, in, in that locker room, especially considering you're going to have to give up a lot of those role players and stop plays that I just mentioned. The Clippers depth is already perfect. Do not trade for Kyrie Irving. I'm, I'm, I'm begging. Uh, Winger and Bowman not to do it. They better not do it. I think that would ruin the entire dog mentality of the locker room, the unity of the team, how hard they hustle. Kyrie Irving is not going to help out that locker room. and He's not going to help out Tyron Lue. He's going to make his job harder. So please do not trade for him. I really hope the Clippers do not. So one last thing I want to talk about before I close out this episode, a couple weeks ago now, which I've been meaning to talk about this, honestly, and just never got to it. The U.S. Open took place in Brookline, Massachusetts at the Country Club, so not too far, right down the street, uh, right next to B.C., actually. Um, I've been meaning to talk about this. I'm not really too into golf. I never really have been, but I figured if you know the U.S. Open's taking place in Brookline, you have to talk about it, um, especially considering it's such a big event. Uh, Matt Fitzpatrick won his first major championship by one stroke. He had a final score of 274. Um, he beat out Americans Scotty Scheffler and Will Zelatoris, um, who both finished tied for second with the final score of 275. Hideki Matsuyama came in fourth. Um, one interesting thing uh, was how close it was. You got Matt Fitzpatrick at minus six, and then Scheffler and Zelatoris at minus five. So just beat them by one stroke. Um, Scheffler actually had a really good Sunday. Uh, it was minus three on day four. Then you look at Fitzpatrick was minus two. Uh, one guy I was really interested in was the Irish golfer Seamus Power. I started following along around maybe the Saturday, a little more, got a little more into it. Um, and he had a really good Saturday and Sunday. He was even on both of those days. And uh, going into uh, the final day, a lot of people were saying he could make noise and, and potentially move up the board and be in the potential top five. Um, he ended up finishing uh, plus one. Still gets himself $347,000, though. Um, but I'm interested to see how he does in the next uh, few tournaments. I was I was excited, though, getting into a little bit um, since I never really followed golf too much. Um, but with it being in Brooklyn, I figured, why not? you got to pay attention and, and follow it. Um, so looking at it, though, as I said, Matt Fitzpatrick wins his first major. It uh, was minus six. He's a 27-year-old English golfer. Um, finished, as I said, with his first major championship. And then the two Americans, 
Scheffler and Zalatoris finished just behind him at second, uh, both tied for second uh, at minus five. Anyways, thank you guys so much for taking the time to listen to this episode. I know it was a very long one, over an hour and 35, hour and 40 minutes now. Um, we're at an hour and 39 minutes, so it'll be an hour and 40 by the time I finish. But thank you guys so much for taking the time to listen. I truly appreciate it. It means a lot to me. Um, I should be back on within the next day or two because I want to talk about uh, what's going on in the NBA, uh, talk about Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant, where they're going to end up, uh, talk about who's signing where and how much money. Uh, so I'll be back on in the next day or two to update you guys on that. But thank you guys so much for taking the time to listen to this. I really appreciate it. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Hope you guys have a great night. Thank you. One last thing before I finish I wanted to mention uh, that I had in my notes that I didn't get to mention uh, was that if I were the LA Lakers, I don't know what's stopping them from taking Russell Westbrook, Anthony Davis, and their 2027 first-round pick and trying to trade for Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant. I've tried to mention that before uh, when I just brought up uh, them wanting to play together again. Uh, but then I just heard Brian Windhorst say the Lakers could have a package I could do, and I thought about it. And I was thinking before, why not trade Anthony Davis and the 2027 first-round pick to try to get Durant? But now why don't you add in Russell Westbrook, maybe even Taylor Horton Tucker, and Anthony Davis and try to get LeBron James to play with Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving? That would be absolutely nuts. It would shake off the entire landscape of the NBA for years to come. Uh, but imagine they could do that, the Lakers, and they took their 2027 first-round pick. LeBron James gets to play with Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving, but the cost is 2027 first-round pick. Taylor Horton Tucker, Russell Westbrook, and Anthony Davis. I don't know what's stopping them from doing that, but I think the I think the Nets are going to are going to want more in return. So maybe they'd have to be a third team involved, but uh, that's just my guess. Anyways, thank you guys so much again for taking the time to listen um, and follow along with everything. I hope you guys really enjoyed this episode. Um, I'll be back on again in, within the next day um, or so to talk about the NBA. I also want to talk about the other big news within within the world of sports, and that's. The Pac-12 potentially losing USC and UCLA to the Big Ten in 2024. And then I also want to talk about uh, how the ACC football landscape um, is going to change after the 2022 season. Uh, So 2023 and uh, years to come, they're going to change the format um, of the schedule um, and make it a 3-5-5 format. So you play three uh, of the same teams every year and then alternate, uh, you know, five teams on the road and five teams away um, every other year. So uh, I'll be back on to give my opinions on that. Um, I figured I'll save it for another episode since this one's already stacked enough. But thank you guys so much again for taking the time to listen to this. I really appreciate it. Hope you guys have a good one. Thank you.